When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The show goes on. This is the official show on the Fish Stripes podcast channel with me, Eli Sussman, the managing editor of Fish Stripes, where we cover your Miami Marlins every day in our own way. Subscribe to this podcast already if you don't. We're everywhere you get your pods, both myself on the official show, Isaac and Kevin on Fish Stripes Unfiltered, Daniel and Andrew on our small pods and this past weekend we even mixed in a special game recap in there that we've done a handful of times already this season of course more coverage exclusive coverage on each of our social media channels at fish stripes on twitter on instagram facebook tiktok and youtube please as we close in on 1000 youtube subscribers help us out with just a click of a button each of those avenues each of those outlets, I should say, giving you something unique that you won't get in either of the other places when it comes to covering the Marlins, the mothership of everything that we do, including the full-length articles, analyzing, reporting, uh, opining, looking at history of the Marlins. That's at fishstripes.com. Bookmark that and check back to it constantly as much as you can. We appreciate all the support that you give us. Uh, on this pod, usually on the Mondays, I review all of the weekend games, but with Daniel Rodriguez's help reporting on site from Saturday night's game, instead we're just going to focus on what you really care about, the one win recently for the Marlins on Sunday, led by Sandy Alcantara. This is going to be a Sandy appreciation episode of sorts. We're going to dive into that rare one-run win the Marlins got. Not a one-run loss, one-run win to finish out their super long homestand and everything that was involved in that game that got a lot dicier at the end than anybody was expecting. And of course, another developing story on the negative side was the status of Jazz Chisholm Jr. I'll tell you what we know about that injury at the moment, of course, and all the ripple effects potentially if Jazz is going to miss a significant amount of time. Fingers crossed that he doesn't. So on the other side of the break, we go a small pod style through this past week in the Marlins organization, and then much more on Sandy and on jazz. Stick with us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. May 22nd, the ninth and final game of this Marlins homestand, hosting the reigning World Series champion Atlanta Braves. And the Marlins 
with Sandy Alcantara on the mound. An all too familiar spot for Sandy. We've seen this really countless times already in his relatively short career where he takes the mound in a series finale, especially on a Sunday, and it's his job to lead them out to salvage a game from a series that they're on the verge of being swept in. So the Marlins had lost the previous two games to the Braves, each of those relatively close going down to the end. In this one, they needed Sandy to step up. As as you would expect, he absolutely did an efficient first inning, going to the bottom of the first Marlins, actually get on the board immediately, which has been kind of an issue for them so far this year. They usually don't take those early leads, but Jazz in his usual leadoff spot, he drew a leadoff walk, went to third on a double, and then scored on a sack fly, but you could see it immediately that he was not right. This is coming off Saturday's game, where as Daniel discussed, and as we covered on Fist Stripes, it was obvious the final couple innings of the game, after he got spiked in the leg on a stolen base attempt, that he was hurting, and that everything he was trying to do, swinging and running and making cuts and turns with his legs, it was not working it was not working he was feeling the pain everybody was surprised that he was in the lineup in the first place on Sunday and just seeing him in this game how gingerly he was moving about that it was clear he wasn't supposed to be in there so after two innings Marlins remove him and they bring in Joe Dunant he's came back very famously in his debut earlier this month hit a home run, hit a double, keyed a Marlins victory, and we hadn't heard of him since. He was sent down almost immediately. The Marlins brought him back up to Miami for this exact scenario with both Jazz and Miguel Rojas nursing these potential injuries. He's that kind of versatile infielder with a little bit of pop in his bat that could help out in these situations. So he comes in and he ends up going one for three off the bench as they the fill-in second baseman for Jazz. Sandy had a lead early on, and he did not cough it up. He goes really not very many threats in this one, aside from the ones that were brought upon by the Marlins defense, both Jesus Sanchez and Jesus Aguilar with really embarrassing errors. Sanchez is one turning into a three-base error in the left center field gap, where he had plenty of time, and he had the right route to get underneath this fly ball around the warning track, and he just whiffed on it. To flex off his glove, takes a carom off the wall, and it goes for a three-base error that contributed to the first run of the game, obviously unearned. And very briefly, the Marlins had coughed up that lead in the middle innings, despite Sandy looking very much on top of his game. They, they get those runs back pretty soon after against Ian Anderson and a little bit more against the Braves' bullpen as well. No home runs in this one for the Marlins, and that ended a streak of 13 straight games with at least one long ball. They were able to do just enough situational hitting. Brian Anderson entered this game hitless with runners in scoring position for the entire season. A guy that had been really clutch in those spots throughout his Marlins career, very uncharacteristically, has been a big problem for the team in that particular situation. He gets off the schneid, and he's the one that got the go-ahead hit for them. Well, I'll Don't shut up now. Set up Severino. <laughs> the base hit. Here comes Cooper. He'll score. Brian Anderson with an RBI single. They end up attacking on a couple more right after that. Sandy, meanwhile, throwing what you have to call a hidden perfect game. Remember, he finished his last start having retired 20 consecutive batters, 
And then through this one, he went the first three innings without allowing a base runner. You tie it all together, and he at one point faced more than 27 consecutive batters without allowing any of them on base. That is a, quote, hidden perfect game. Congrats to Sandy. He did not get the actual perfect game done in this situation. Ronald Acuna Jr. was, again, very pesky. Got a couple hits against Sandy when those were very hard to come by on this date. Going into the ninth inning, a three-run lead. There was a question as to whether Sandy would be allowed to finish it, uh, but you it's really not surprising, ultimately, that they stuck with him, considering all the trauma that we've been through trying to finish off the ninth inning. The one person that hasn't been in that position to pitch a ninth inning to close the game has been one of the starting pitchers themselves. So Sandy gets the shot here, even with his pitch count right around 100 entering that inning. That's when the Aguilar error dropped foul pop-up. I think it was on the first pitch of a plate appearance, too. It would have been so, like, it was such an easy opportunity for the Marlins to creep towards the finish line of that game, and it was deflating when he dropped it. I was so sure at that moment that Sandy was not going to get through the inning that they'd have to go to what was Anthony Bass warming up in the pen to try to finish it off. And it, it does get very dicey at the end. He allows a couple more hits in that one, brings the potential tying run to the plate, and it was Adam Duvall that he ultimately gets out to finish off the game. A career-high 115 pitches. He allows three runs, but all of them unearned as a result of those Sanchez and Aguilar errors. And these were directly on the heels of those. These were ones where it was pretty obvious that he would have thrown a shutout in this one if not for some spotty defense. 73% of his pitches for strikes. We're going to get into that in a moment about how the question entering the start with Sandy, despite his overall success this season, was his control being worse than we're accustomed to being. Not the case here whatsoever. That's how he was even efficient enough to be in a scenario to pitch that ninth inning. It is only the sixth complete game in Major League Baseball this entire season to this point. There's fewer of those than ever that we're seeing. And as I mentioned, Dunand gets brought back up, immediately gets thrown into the action, playing second base, which is a position that, as far as I can tell, he had never played officially in his adult life, in college, in the minors, and obviously never in the majors before. But he ends up contributing to this 4-3 Marlins win that salvages the final game of the series and keeps them within a half game of both the Braves and the Phillies for second place in the National League East. As I said, Acuna, he made his presence felt in all three games of this series. Overall, in the leadoff spot, each of those games, playing designated hitter as a precaution, the Braves did not want him to play on the synthetic surface as opposed to national grass. So he was limited to only his bat and his legs to make an impact, and he sure did. Five for eight with three walks and two stolen bases in this series. What I noticed also is the attendance on Sunday. Surprisingly, the best attended game of the three and one of the best, probably the second best attended game of this entire homestand. Um, the Marlins now are on pace almost for that magic $1 million, $1 million, $1 million total fans paid attendance. That's a milestone I've been keeping an eye on for a few years now. Their pace right now after this homestand, 985,000. Pivoting to the minor leagues, as always, my fish prospects of the week. On the pitching side, I'm going to go with Gabe Bierman, 
for low A Jupiter. He's had an up and down year for them, a 2021 draft pick. In this one, this past week, on Sunday, pitching six scoreless innings and only allowing two hits, both of them just puny singles as Jupiter pitches a shutout in what was the first half of a doubleheader game for Bierman. Overall, um, he's off to a pretty decent start to his professional career, and I wonder if we're going to see him up at high A later this season. Someone that is at high A right now, a fellow 2021 draft pick, Cody Morissette. High A Beloit, get a huge week. This is a guy that got off to a really slow start, as did many of these Sky Carp hitters this year, and he turned it on, especially with the power. Someone who is not a huge physical presence, from the left side, he is considered much more of a hit over power type of guy. This past week, he showed plenty of both for the Sky Carp. He upped his stat line to being well above league average now um, in terms of both on base and power. I think now six home runs for Morissette, where the minor leagues are, they're barely past the one quarter mark of their season themselves. So for Morissette, potentially in his first my, in his first full minor league season to be on a 2020 three home run pace to this point is very exciting and he's playing both what, second base and third base for Beloit this season this past week mostly at second good job by Morissette an honorable mention to Edward Cabrera my number fourth ranked Marlins prospect with AAA Jacksonville still but now he is pounding on that door 11 strikeouts in his start this week in particular I love what he is doing with his breaking balls early on this season using them in really clever ways to make him a more complete pitcher. He was effective last year before getting called up and, and struggling, but I think right now he's used his time wisely to better prepare himself for success when that opportunity comes at the major league level. With a Marlins off day on deck, that just gives us some extra time to dwell on a extraordinary outing from Sandy Alcantara Complete games, you just can't wrap your mind around how rare they are now with the way that pitchers are managed this particular season, considering how everybody had to rush through spring training and just the general philosophy of teams that they can put together these bullpens of guys that are going to be more effective in the later innings than your starter is going to be. It's so rare that pitchers get an opportunity to finish a game. Uh, and in this particular case, one that at one point was very much in doubt or they needed those outs at the very end and didn't have much margin for error. And Sandy still proved that he was the right guy for that situation. Popped up, Stallings makes the catch. It's a Marlins win and a complete game for Sandy Alcantara. A rarity in the game today. What I loved about this game is that he had his entire pitch mix like really looking nasty and getting big results. He had five or more whiffs on four different pitches. He was getting into all these great counts, 25 whiffs in this count, 25 swinging strikes, five of them on the sinker, seven of them on the four-seam fastball, five of them on the slider, and eight of them on the changeup. He was mixing them all very uh, unpredictably through more than 20 of each of those pitches. So you never knew where they're coming, even regardless of whether it was a righty bat or a lefty bat. It was it was a masterpiece, what him and Jacob Stallings put together in this particular game. 
with each of those pitches, it also got me thinking about how we view his season overall. So he entered this game with an ERA in the mid-twos. By the end of the day, it was down to 2.11. Yet there has been this general sentiment that Sandy is not like at his best, that perhaps he wasn't even pitching as well this year as he was last year. And so I see why some people may be thinking that, because they look at the peripherals. They look at his fielder independent pitching. Last year was the one year where, for the first time, the fielder independent stuff started to validate how he already felt about Sandy, just because he was starting to strike out more hitters. He was still doing a good job keeping it in the ballpark. And the biggest change last year was how he was limiting those walks. He, he brought it way down to a level that was an actual strength of his game, what had once been the biggest question mark. In some ways, the start of this season felt like a reversion, a step backwards, because he was issuing so many walks. It was obviously making him less efficient, and it was just putting him in these situations that you, you felt that he wasn't in control of the game the way that an ace should be. That being said, throughout it all, he's done such a wonderful job at managing contact. And we saw it definitely in this particular game, where it was a combination of ground balls and really soft flares, pop-ups. Even the ones that felt for hits mostly felt really lucky. Until that ninth inning, it was only in the ninth inning that he started to seem human again. But for all those other innings, those balls in play, and there were still quite a few balls in play in this game, he only he got seven strikeouts, but for nine innings, that's really nothing all that special. He was somebody that was inviting contact early in the count, and he was able to get those great results. Entering the start, he'd been already doing like a great job of that. When you look at the stat from StatCast called Expected Weighted on Base on Contact, the actual quality of contact being made against him, and like, you know, an estimate as to what would happen to those batted balls under neutral circumstances. And, and for his career, he's been above average in this category. So the MLB average for expected weighted on base on contact has been 370. And for his career, overall, he's at 347, significantly better. But for 22 in particular, he's knocking on the door of 300. League average 370, and he's in the low 300s at 309 entering his most recent start. It just shows you that... He was, I mean, all this is, you need to give some credit that some of this is happening by design. It's not quite as lucky as you might think. And even though it's a different style, it's not as sexy as some of those times towards the end of last year when he was piling up more double-digit strikeout games. Um, This is still a good formula and something that is fairly repeatable. As long as he's using all those pitches, it's still worth noting that he has lost a lot of spin rate on that four-seam fastball since the sticky stuff checks went into effect. In fact, if you rewind to his rookie year, the spin rate on his four-seamer is down almost 200 revolutions per minute. It had been previously at the peak of his spin rate powers, I guess. It had been in, let's look at this, the mid-2300s, 2356 on average, in his rookie year, and that's all the way, all the way down to 2176, down 180 revolutions per minute, and I think that held true in this start as well. So even though he had a lot of success with his four-seamer in this game, um, yeah, the spin rate was like exactly on par with where it had been throughout this year, and he's able to get results anyway. 
And I mean, the key indicator that he's had to make an adjustment is the fact that spin rate is pretty proportional usually to velocity. Sandy's throwing harder than ever, and yet the spin rate is lower. So that just goes to show you that he just is making remarkable adjustments by, even if he's not throwing quite as many strikes as we'd like to see in the zone, um, he is like not making as many egregious mistakes over the heart of the plate. So in this game, he just did a outstanding job of keeping that four-seamer up in the zone. That's how he got some of those critical pop-ups in, in this game. Uh, even when he was throwing it in the strike zone, he was kept keeping it in the upper third of the zone as well. Um, his sinker command was kind of all over the place, but his changeup... Uh, as usual, keeping it low and below the zone and uh, towards working it in towards righties and having it dart away towards lefties. And of course, the slider kind of mirrors that changeup and that it breaks the opposite direction, works the opposite side of the plate. It's such a pleasure to watch him because he he really is just such a complete pitcher. He has all this in mind. His pairing with Jacob Stallings has been outstanding I, I think that that's going a long way to making the trade worth it the way that Stallings has worked with Sandy I'll have to double check have they been paired together in every single start this year because it certainly feels like it right that they have been um, buddy buddy and have been bringing the best out of each other as I pull up the stats just to be sure indeed it is Jacob Stallings has caught every one of Sandy Alcantara's pitches this season that's been a lot of pitches because Sandy has pitched 59 and two-thirds innings by far the most in the majors. This guy has talked about throughout his career how much he prides himself in being a workhorse, how accomplished he felt to surpass 200 innings last year, and he is even ahead of that pace this year against every all the factors working against him. No team really wants their pitcher to throw 200 innings in a season. They all are scared of exactly what will happen if they push their limits like that. And here Sandy is, five more innings pitched than the next closest pitcher. The gap between him and number two, Robbie Ray, is the same between Robbie Ray and the number 12 pitcher in Major League Baseball. It's not even close. It's a combination of the efficiency and the combination of the stamina to just remain effective deep into the game. Unless Sandy, when he gets the fourth time through a lineup, that's when you begin to see the cracks. Otherwise, he is just incredible. I mentioned before, only six complete games in Major League Baseball this year. Even if you go back to last year, there were a total of 50. 50 complete games over a full season for 30 teams, less than two per team. And I think it's well worth spending, what was this, about 20 minutes of the pod on Sandy in his performance alone because you don't know if there's going to be another one of these this season. Even if they have Sandy for the rest of this year, and even if he does wind up having an even better year of his career, even if, even if he is improved as an overall pitcher, it takes so much going right to throw a complete game. I mean, without even mentioning the fact that this was against a solid Braves lineup, one that had Ronald Acuna Jr. back, and from a team overall that has a lot of experienced and dangerous bats in them, for him to do it against this opponent still relatively early in the season uh, at a time when it's so rarely done by even the most established 
super duper aces, even if he has all that dough in his bank account, it is not at all reducing his motivation to continue getting better. So that's a positive from Sunday's win that improved the Marlins to 18 and 22. The obvious negative of this one was Jazz. The really perplexing decision to play him at all in this game, considering how he finished on Saturday. And they do pull him after two innings, you know, before, uh, I don't I don't know exactly what would have happened if they kept on playing him in what was a clearly injured situation. You just don't see that in baseball. You don't see that where a, a player is allowed to, a player is empowered to choose when they play and when they don't. Um, sometimes, most of the times, the player is not the one thinking rationally in that situation, and you need an adult to step in. You need the coaches and the trainers to step in, um, and they did, uh, but it may have been too late because Jazz leaves the game on Sunday with, quote, left hamstring tightness. If that's all it is, if it's left hamstring tightness, maybe he plays as soon as Tuesday. That's the best-case scenario. As he comes back from the off day, uh, they go through all the tests, and maybe they have him as the designated hitter on Tuesday. That's the realistic best-case scenario, is that he's in the lineup as the DH or something and doesn't actually miss a full game. The um, I would say the more likely scenario is that they are going to take this day by day by day, and they're going to be really cautious with yet another off day coming up on Thursday. Like, There's a chance that Jazz misses the entire upcoming Rays series, and Think of Joe Dunand and Eric Gonzalez, have them carry the team in that situation uh, while he heals up. Um, and then the, you know, the, another possibility is that they call it tightness just to keep everybody calm, but further tests reveal perhaps something more significant, a hamstring strain, something that Joey Wendell is going through right now and something that the man himself, Jazz Chisholm Jr., went through at almost this exact time last year. You remember there were several nagging injuries that limited Jazz's playing time in 2021, and the most significant absence of those was when he strained his hamstring in the end of April at the at time where the view of him across baseball was very much like it is now. He was ascending to be one of the faces of the league. He was doing everything right, and he was... Such he was the ideal guy to have at the top of your lineup and playing every day at second base. He got hurt. He ended up missing only two and a half weeks, not even three full weeks, 16 games or so. And on the other side of that injury absence, he had plenty of awesome moments. Some of the best moments of his season came after that point in the season. Still had some tape measure home runs. Still was electric to watch on the bases. Incredible defensive plays, at least when he was at second base. Unfortunately, the overall production from that point onward just was not the same. It, it You might not believe this, but he was hitting just as well in April of 2021 as he is here in April and May of 2022. It was from that point forward, coming off that first IL stint, that things went south for Jazz. If you look at it from that, that final, how many games was it? More than 100 games from May 16th onward. He was a below-average hitter for all the tools that he had. He hit 236 with a 681 OPS, 
and he had 14 home runs. That's nothing special over 102 games. He, he just was not getting to his power consistently. He was not barreling the ball at a notable rate after doing it at an elite rate early in the year. It threw off his entire year. It He just was not consistent on the other side of that first injury absence. For uh, whatever number of reasons, he's not going to blame it on the injury. The reality is that that can really throw you off. And just fingers crossed, we're not, we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves about what this injury could be. I'm simply imagining if it's the same injury that he had at this point at that time when he was pushing himself just a little too far and his team put him in a situation where he could like worsen the injury that was already developing in him back on Saturday night. If he misses time, it's it's a scary situation. You don't know exactly what it's going to look like on the other side, and you don't know how the Marlins are going to handle it in the immediate term. As of Sunday, both Joey Wendell and John Birdie, John Birdie coming back from the COVID IL, they are running at full speed. Um, they are perhaps more so in Birdie's case than Wendell, but in either one, I mean, they could be going on minor league rehab assignments by the end of this upcoming week. It's hard to overstate how impactful Jazz has been to this point in the season. He is produced about two wins above replacement at the one-quarter mark of the season. He's on an eight-war pace, which would be right there with Giancarlo Stanton, 2017 MVP. It's a short list of Marlin seasons that have been at that level. It's peak Stanton. It's peak Dontrell Willis. It's peak Kevin Brown. And that's pretty much the end of the list as to how valuable he's been because of what he does in all these facets of the game. And it's coming at a time where the other players that can help at his particular position at second base are not available. So you're like going to some really um, unideal options, frankly, in both Eric Gonzalez and Joe Dunans, even if it's for one game, two games. All these games are so precious when, if you're this Marlins team, Aside from Sunday, you've been losing so many of these one-run games, they've dug themselves a hole. I mentioned before how they are right there for contending for second place in the National League East, but that doesn't mean shit. That doesn't mean anything. They don't. There's no automatic berth for second place in the division. It is not relevant at all. And you have to look at the reality of the Mets being that one team in the division that they didn't have last year that is running away from the rest of the pack, the Mets are up by, I can't believe this, are they up by eight and a half games over the Marlins? The season just started, and it's an eight and a half game deficit that I think even the most optimistic Marlins fan would agree is not going to be able to overcome. So that is no longer a route. This is a team that is playing for the wild card. We've I don't think we've said that phrase at all much on the podcast this season. Um, it's not too early to make it clear that this team, their mission the rest of the year is to sneak in as one of three National League wildcard teams. There are not any excuses for this Marlins team to be playing sub-500 from this point forward. They are pretty close to full strength, intriguing players knocking on the door at AAA Jacksonville that are going to ultimately be needed to get this team exactly where it's trying to go at the end of the 2022 season. 
So I've been Eli Sussman. This has been the official show on the Fish Stripes Podcast channel. As always, go fish. Go fish.